and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us for today's guest. He is a podcast expert. He's probably listening to this episode with a pen and a pad of paper so that he can critique and give me feedback because we're going to get into him in a minute, but he is somebody who thinks deeply about damn good conversations. So that's the teaser for our guest today. But before we get to him, I want to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about what our world calls soft skills. So if you've ever heard soft skills in a corporate setting, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. We're gonna talk about curiosity today. That is a strong skill that is foundational to human performance and human well-being. And at Strong Skills, we work with people on things like curiosity and how can they step in to curiosity more often so that they can learn, grow, develop, and be the best version of them. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the book via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, one of the things that today's guest and myself have in common is that we both consider ourselves to be coaches. He happens to be a teacher. I went to school to coach people. So I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching and a group component. So we have monthly Zoom calls, we have guest speakers, and an annual retreat. It's designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our next accelerator launches in January, so it's actually going to be quite a few months away from today, but it's actually starting to fill up. 
So we'll launch it in January 2022. And if you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. And thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. So Joe Ferraro is somebody that I found on social media or he found me. I don't remember how we met, but we both really, really love Twitter. And we both enjoy it as a place to gather, to learn, and to share. And Joe is currently entering his 24th year as an educator. He teaches 12th grade English. He also teaches public speaking and creative writing. In addition to his work in the classroom, he is the founder of damngoodconversations.com. How about that for a domain? And Damn Good Conversations is a company whose mission it is to teach you repeatable ways to have the best conversations in your life and work. His flagship service is the weekly personal growth podcast, which is called 1% Better. I was fortunate to go on there, but he's had on other people way beyond myself. He's on Seth Godin, Dan Pink, James Clear, Debbie Millman, and many other intentional performers that we've been fortunate to have on this podcast and people that I've gotten to learn from from listening to Joe's remarkable podcast. Joe loves conversations. He loves food, which we'll talk about in this conversation as well. And at his core, he is a curious, curious guy. He is somebody who is constantly learning, constantly growing, and cares deeply about the art of dialogue, language, and conversation. So in this conversation, we actually pretty much go into a coaching session. And Joe starts talking about his experience in the schools. And I start challenging Joe to bring curiosity into the classroom and bring what he's learned on his podcast into the ears and the minds and the souls of the people he serves as a teacher. So at his core, Joe's a teacher, he's a learner, he's a coach, and he's someone who really cares about making this world a little bit better, and he found it. I can also call him a friend and somebody who I've really enjoyed learning from and collaborating with so far. Here's the last thing I'll say. I usually end my introduction by saying, without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Joe Ferraro. But Joe doesn't like the term ado. So what I'll do is, and this is honor in honor of Joe, I'm just going to introduce you to my friend Joe. I know you're going to love this conversation. I'm so grateful that he spent time to come on the Intentional Performance Podcast. Here we go, Joe. Let's share you with our Intentional Performance community. Joe, happy anniversary. What 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 anniversary is this? This is lucky 13, Brian. You all made it. <laughs> well, it's a, we're never arrived. We're always becoming. That's what you taught me. Well, being and becoming are both essential. That's right. But I gotta, happy anniversary. I gotta, thank you. I got I to gotta get on to my polarity game. It's been something that actually has helped me a lot as much as I poke fun. But you're right. Being and becoming. I'll take that. Yeah. I love being and becoming because, like, especially in sports, we often focus on becoming 1% better, becoming, get better, get better. And one of the things I always think about it, well, like, when are you being, when are you just good with where you are? And with someone whose podcast is named 1% better, I'm curious for you, 
what do you got planned for the anniversary? Is there some being time? Is there some time just the two of you? What do you got for us? We, we've lived kind of like an indulgent, beautiful summer so far. And uh, we kind of looked at each other today and didn't have anything grand on the calendar. And maybe to your point, felt a little bit of that, like, ah, should we be like, there should be rose, rose petals all over the house. And like, why aren't candles lit? And we don't have a sitter and all those things. But we, we have a nice restaurant planned tonight. Uh, I wrote out a beautiful card. I know she has a sneaky gift for me and uh, we love spending time with our kids. And my mother-in-law recently had a, a, you know, an injury that she's kind of on the mend and she's our childcare person. So like, what are we going to do? We're going to say, let's search all over the greater Connecticut area for the perfect sitter. No, I think there is a lesson there, right? It's like, we're going to have a great dinner. We have other plans this summer. And, um, I think that's enough. I think that that is enough. And maybe, maybe this is me telling myself this, but I married a person who believes that too. So it's, it's kind of a nice partnership. That word enough is a word that I've been thinking a lot about. When you hear the word enough, what comes to mind? It's something I struggle with. Um, Seth Godin has this line where he says, sometimes good enough means good enough. And I love those, those pauses, those intentional pauses. I, I don't necessarily think that um, I'm, I'm good at saying, well, that's enough. We've been there. Right. Whether it's something where I'm at my table and I'm going to have one more helping or whether it's uh, I got to get that next download or I want to make the, the podcast a little bit better. So I think that is something that um, is something that I think about um, when I have good questions like like that and something that I don't actively think about. Brian, I don't I don't sit around and say to myself. I don't know when I'll get to enough. It's more like me moving forward and then beautiful conversations like this give me a chance to pause and think about it. It's not something that I, that I actively think about. It's so interesting because we go back to being and becoming and that tension there or the polarity there. I love the idea that I am enough and I still have room to grow. Yeah, I don't want to give anybody listening a false sense of, of how I view myself as I go to a classroom and I teach my students and I show up to do interviews. I definitely feel a sense of confidence. I definitely feel a sense of competence. I feel that um, if I'm being really uh, grandiose, I, I think that my students are lucky to have me and I certainly think I'm lucky to have them. So I do have those moments. I don't suffer from a, from an unhealthy dose of confidence or, or courage. But I, I think that there's something to be said when you name your podcast 1% Better and you're, and you're talking about always getting better. There is something you bring to my attention, which is that unhealthiness that you could go to, one could go to, um, if not careful. Yeah, I, I, I think I hear it a lot with high performers and they're always looking to become grow, grow, grow. And they don't stop to just pause to your point. I love the pause. Good enough. And I just think enough if used you can use it in so many different ways. And you just did that. Even I think we both love food in this, in the same way. And my wife is really good at saying, Oh, I'm full. That's enough. And that's healthy. Uh, whereas maybe you and I will go for that second piece of chicken parm or veal parm or steak or fries or whatever your pleasure. And that can lead to issues. So um, what a cool way to start this conversation. And I think it was, as, as Joe knows about me, like I love the organic elements of damn good conversations. And I also appreciate how much you plan and prepare for your podcast and really anything that you do. Where I wanted to start with you is on this idea of a damn good conversation, which is a phrase that Joe uses. And I love, I love adding the word damn. 
compared to an interview, do you think about those as separate or the same thing? I think they're very closely related to the point where I've heard different guests like, you know, some people will talk about management versus leadership, right? And one will be on one team, one will be on the other team. And then I've heard experts come on and say, it's such a waste of time to try to parse those out. So I find that interesting to hear both sides. Um, damn good interviews works for me too. Um, but I feel like when you think of a conversation, it's just more of a, of a giving connotation, right? There's a, there's a back and forth, there's bringing things to it. I've often thought about interviewing as a verb to help people understand the difference, right? Like interview is one tool that helps make up a damn good conversation, but also so is silence. Just letting someone have that space to, to respond. And so is body language. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say that um, people always think about those as tools, but I think in building a conversation, um, I almost feel like there's a shape to it. It doesn't have to be the same shape every time. Um, and I think within that conversation, there's interviewing that goes on. Um, and I'm not against interviewing, though. You're never going to hear me say, well, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to interview Brian. I'm not afraid to interview Brian. I love interviewing. Um, but I think the way I've started to really try to make sense of it in my own head so that I can communicate it to others is conversations, the container in which we'll, we'll kind of operate today. Um, but you're certainly going to interview me. I mean, I, you, can, you can say to the listeners, well, Joe and I just had a conversation. But I think at times you're going to ask pointed questions and you already have that I find that does fall more in the bucket of an interview. Man, I love the idea that the interview is a tool, just like body language, silence, curiosity, whatever you want to, however you want to think about. I hadn't thought about it like that. And I think I really like that. I'll give you a, a couple examples of this. One might have been more appropriate and other was less appropriate. I got hired for years ago to interview players at the combine, the NBA combine. So I go to Chicago and I interview players and you get a 30 minute window with these players. And I walk in and, you know, it's the front office, the coaches, it's the staff and me, and my job is to interview them. That's what they paid me to do. And the first guy comes in and comes in and the first five, 10 minutes, you know, the staff is just shooting the shit with them, telling them about the city and all this other stuff. And then I take over for the next 15, 20 minutes. I just grill the person, interview, all questions. And we finish it. And somebody there says, Brian, going forward, you're just going to run this. <laughs> and I looked at them and I said, guys, this isn't free agency. You're not recruiting this person to go play college ball. You can draft this person. We need to get as much information from this person as possible in the 30 minutes we have. And so that for me was an interview. Like I, my job was to not tell them anything about me. My job was just to gather data, to gather information, to learn about who they were. And then the other example I'm going to give is I remember being away somewhere and I was sitting in the backseat of an Uber with someone and I was just asking them questions, curious, 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 curious. And the person that was sitting shocked and goes, would you stop interviewing him? And it was actually inappropriate. It was too much curiosity without me sharing anything about myself. And it wasn't a conversation. And we were on a vacation. Like that person probably didn't need to be grilled, but I went into like interview curiosity mode. Um, so I think about those two examples as like one, I think interviewing was really, really needed. And the other, it was, it was too much. Is there a time where you have to turn off 
the interview or curiosity mind that you might have inside of you? There is, but, but often what I do when I turn it off is I go to silence and I don't engage. See, I, I don't have a gear that I'm that interested in where it goes to small talk gear because I feel like whether I say it explicitly or not, there's a waste of time that's implicit in that. My time, but, but more importantly, the, the partner's time because I'm not interested in the weather, right? So it just wouldn't make sense for my ethos to interview the Uber driver with small talk. Um, an example that I've, I've been thinking about a lot and crafting with, along with the Uber driver example is just if you get into an Uber and you say to the, to the driver, you know, what, what's the best restaurant in town? And that's the question he or she gets every single time a tourist gets in the Uber. And I just want people to say, or I want to encourage people to say, and I certainly want to live this way. I want to encourage them to say, what's the best restaurant in town that no one knows about? And that example is, is something that I just, I think illustrates what I'm trying to do in a conversation. I, I, I work it backwards, Brian. I go, what am I looking for? A great meal, but a little bit off the beaten path to optimize for novelty and maybe something that wouldn't be a tourist trap. And then what's the very best way that I can get that answer from the Uber driver? And I feel like in some way that would make the Uber driver kick into another gear and it would almost set up a, a fail safe to where he or she just wouldn't be able to go into autopilot. And they wouldn't be, ah, chichis. No, no, it's not. You're not going to be able to say it because no one's really asked you that question before. And it's just by adding three or four words. And, and actually, some people would find this exhausting at first, but I've conditioned it over time. That's what I try to do with every single question. It doesn't mean I don't ask lazy questions. It doesn't mean every question is a work of poetry. But when I have time to think about how to craft a question, I'll just throw that in there so that I am optimizing that which I seek. And then often I get surprised. I get pleasantly surprised by the result. I get what I'm asking for and more. You talk about high velocity questions. Is that a piece of the high velocity question or are there other elements that lead to a high velocity question? That's definitely a piece of it. You know, I had to go to science friends and be like, wait, velocity speed. I think about baseball pitching speed. How is it different than speed? They explained without getting too complicated that it has to be speed and in a certain direction. So when I think about planning for that conversation, it, you and I could have a darn good conversation about food, but that's not what the listeners are here from for. So we're going to try to give examples of food situations that enlighten what we do, but we're not here to talk about food, even though it'd be fun. It'd be fun for us and for a couple listeners. That's not velocity in a direction. So every time I ask a question, I wanted to accomplish more than one thing. I, I have a very serious hunch that you asked a number of high velocity questions during that combine process, because in a, in a sense, you had to rush, right? Because you only had 30 minutes hard stop. So within that rushing, maybe there's a John Wooden lesson to pull out. Every question had to accomplish more than one thing. Not everyone, but often they had to. And uh, that's, that's the velocity, accomplishing more than one thing at a time, cutting through the small talk, going in a specific direction, and, and, and optimizing a little bit for novelty. I'm going to try to add on to that because I love it. And the, the last piece that you just said, optimizing for novelty is interesting because I think you're great at planning, but we can't just plan. We also have to be present. And in order for something to be of velocity, there has to be some presence there Big to time. execute. Um, so that, that's, that's awesome. Okay. Teaching here's, here's where I'm so curious about you is you're a teacher by trade. How do you bring interviewing curiosity questions into the classroom? We'll start there. 
you catch me at an interesting time in my career. I'm entering uh, year 23 and uh, English teacher, five years as a middle school teacher, whatever the math tells us for the rest in high school. And um, for the last, I, I started podcasting in 2014. And I think prior to this year, 22, I never mentioned to a student that I have a podcast. Really? And, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 Joe. Wait, hold on. Before you go there, why, why, why wouldn't you mention that? This is a big part of your life. It's a huge part of my life. It's something that I've become, inc- I, I never wasn't proud of it. Like I was just about to say, I've become more and more proud of it. I was proud of it for day one when I did it co-hosting of a baseball podcast with my friend Kevin. I was really proud when I launched my first podcast on July 1st, 2017. I'm more proud today that I get invited on shows like like yours. Um, and yet when I go to the classroom, there's something in me that wants to turn that world off and not be Joey Podcast, not be Joey Tryhard, not be anyone that thinks they're someone special. And it's a weird psychological thing, I guess. I think there's also a part of it that's like, well, you're there to teach. You're not there to interview. I, I never really had an uh, administrator where I just had a sit down with him or her and just said, Hey, you know, I do a podcast. So if I blend the world, I just never did it. I made these conscious choices to blur those lines and uh, not blur the lines to, to, to really outline those lines and stay in one world or another. And, and I'll pause there because I know you want to dig into that. And then I'll circle back to the part where, you know, the interesting part of your 23. Did you never have somebody discover it and say, hey, hey, Joe, I, I found your podcast. Uh, this is pretty good stuff. You got, great, a- you got a great voice. Your voice sounds different <laughs> on a microphone than it does in our classroom. <laughs> uh, quick anecdote on that. I had a so much so you just reminded me of this anecdote. I have this very extroverted colleague and uh, we had a brand new superintendent. I mean, just like literally the welcome breakfast and my colleagues like, Hey, you know, Joe Ferrara, 1% better. <laughs> and I just told you and the listeners, I had been intentionally not telling anyone in the district that had a podcast and this person who's going to judge me in some way, shape or form for the next 11 years, she tells at the breakfast. Now that superintendent didn't make it as long as others, but the, the point really, I don't know what the point is. The point might be that, that that's a me problem. Like I, I don't know. We don't have enough time on air to really dive into why that bothered me so much, but I felt like my friend and colleague was, was violating a boundary. And yet like it, it just wasn't that big a deal in the retrospect. Well, there, you know, me, Joe, Joe, Joe and I have spent, we actually have never met each other, but we've met each other over zoom. We've never broken bread, which we will at some that point. That will happen. Yeah. We both like bread, but, uh, I've worked with so many high school teams over the years and I'm always, and and you live in a high high school ecosystem far more than I do. And I'm so curious about high school students and their desire to fit in compared to stick out. Because I remember when I was in high school, it wasn't that long ago. And the people I looked up to were the lazy, but talented people people that didn't have to study for a test and still got an A you know, the, the athlete that didn't have to work hard, but was still dominant over everybody. And so for me, and this might've changed in, you know, the 20 years since, but for me, that, that those were the kids that I actually thought were cool. The ones that didn't have to work hard, but still got the results. And so I'm curious about this dynamic of sticking out versus fitting in and perhaps for you, and I'm not equating lazy, but talented to wanting to fit in, but there's a parallel there, which is high school is often about wanting to fit in for many 
people, uh, at least for me, like you don't want to necessarily be an other or stick out in that time of your life. And then you get older and you realize that that's something that actually makes us unique and special. And hopefully our high school kids are realizing that more and more. Mm. But for you, was there just this desire to, to not stick out with the podcast and a desire to fit in? It's interesting you, you suggest that because um, a few thoughts. One, the people I looked up to were, were the opposite of what you just described. Um, in high any, school, in high school, you looked up to the people that worked hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, you know, I, I can think of a specific teammate who taped his wrists, wore the sunglasses on his hat, was super smooth in the field, and I wanted none of it. I just mm. had no I had no interest in it. And years later, I'd have conversations with this person. And he would say, well, as, as calmly and non cocky as he could, he would say, I was punished because the game looked easy to me. And, and I would have to say, yeah, like I, it wasn't you weren't punished, but like it just it didn't appeal to me. I like David Eckstein. Right. He has a terrible major league arm, but he was a two time World Series MVP. I like um, now I like Kirby Puckett, but even there, right, like Kirby Puckett, what, five, eight overweight, not fitting the mold. Those are my guys. I like the overachievers. Um, I, I guess I prided myself uh, uh, in that. Now, in the classroom, interestingly, I would say one of my proudest accomplishments professionally is leading a group to start something called alumni classroom. Alumni classroom is the opposite of fitting in. Alumni classroom is part TED talk, part reunion, part English class of kids coming back to visit one more time as far back as the class of 2005. So I had 30 year old married women with children coming back to an English class reunion. And that is the target of anyone who wants to criticize a tryhard, right? You're bringing these kids together for community and learning and doing it in the auditorium and sharing it on Twitter and Facebook. So Mr. Polarity, sometime off the air, air we'll have to discuss why I don't mind fitting in in certain places and why I want to stand out in others. I don't have the answers right now, but maybe a beach this summer. I'll, I'll give that some thought, but I think, I think that's plenty of fodder for someone like you to go to work. You're making me actually question what I just said, because it, if my friends are listening and, and many of them do, they're probably laughing because I was undersized uh, and Rudy was like my hero. And when you think about Amen. Rudy, it's like hardworking, you know, underdog, the people I liked in football were the linebackers. And, you know, so, and then, you know, I was president of my middle school. So like, I think in many ways I was comfortable standing out, but perhaps there was a jealousy of those that didn't have to. And that I think is maybe what I was trying to articulate was because I was the one that had to work my ass off when I was on the floor, like basketball is my sport and I was five foot nothing, 100, nothing. Like I had no choice in the matter. Like I wasn't gifted enough to, to be lazy, but talented, so to speak. But I would watch this six foot one kid and be like, man, like he's, he's just different. I, I wouldn't say I wanted to be jealousy is not even the right word, but there was an acknowledgement of wanting to fit in that. I think I had in high school that I got rid of in college. I think in college, I, I really didn't care as much about fitting in. Um, my friends would probably, it'd be interesting to get their perspective. They probably would disagree with my own analysis of myself and my own reflection of myself. Um, perhaps it's maybe a ecosystem acknowledgement that that ecosystem was about often fitting in. Um, so it's an interesting conversation. I'll go back to where we, where we were in the middle of that, which is why did you decide to share 
uh, recently with your students about the podcast? Well, I bought these stickers from Amazon that were beautiful question marks. And I, I, I put this thing out where I said, you know, it's going to be like helmet stickers. Every time someone in the class asks a juicy question, I'm going to just over the top present a question mark sticker to your notebook. And knowing what I know about kids, 12th graders don't mind a kindergarten like it's almost like a dichotomy, right? Everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. Well, when you're in 12th grade, a sticker is cool again. So I did this like big elaborate, even showed a video of Ohio State and the Buckeyes and like the helmet sticker. And I bought these these question marks and I think I bought a 50 pack and I still have stickers left, Brian. It's 180 day, 104 students school year. I have stickers left. That concerned me. That concerned me a lot. And while I'm doing my professional work, helping people ask better questions, helping people have better conversations, tapping into the creativity of conversation, and these stakeholders sitting in front of me don't know I have a podcast, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, and didn't ask 50 juicy questions all year. Now, maybe my rubric for juicy questions has gotten tough because I talk to people like you, but I think that's a problem. And I I, I'm going to address it in, in many different ways this year. Reason I say it's weird that they don't know I have a podcast because you could just say, well, you didn't tell them. I know, but with Google and this adult in front of you, there's this strange part of me that's like, he always talks about podcasts, other people's podcasts. Maybe I would just like hear from someone. Maybe I'd ask the other question. So I think sometimes, and one of my colleagues had told me, sometimes my uh, expectations for curiosity and creativity get too high. Um, and you can't expect an, an old head on young shoulders, you know, says the proverb. But what I really want to do this year is I want to lean in. I want to model. I want to highlight. I want to celebrate great questions that, that celebrate curiosity. And I think that as I enter year 23, I don't know yet if I'm going to say, here's four facts about me on day one, and include the podcast, but I do know that I'm going to show and do a better job of celebrating and modeling the power of questions. You mentioned middle school, but you taught for five years in middle school. Did you find middle schoolers to be more curious than, than 12th graders? Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about it like that, but definitely, as you say, they had a group of girls when I first started, how old are you? How old are you? Where are you from? Where are you from? And then one girl was so mature. She's like, can I ask you a question, Mr. Farrar? I'm like, sure, what's the matter? She's like, why don't you just tell the girls how old you are? I'm like, well, I'm trying to keep professional boundaries. And she's, and I'm, I'm 24 years old at the time, whatever. And, and she's like, yeah, but if you just say 24, now what? Doesn't that just end it? I'm like, damn it, you're so smart. Go to class. Like, you know, like, so I'm always listening to what they say, but th yeah, they, they, they were more curious, period. What, what, what gets in the way from middle school to 12th grade? I just, uh, I just finished a book that I decided was my PD for the summer. And the title is so damning. Why don't students like school by Daniel Willingham. And uh, he actually went in a totally different direction, which is, is he went from a cognitive researcher point of view and brain science and, and memory and working memory and stuff. Not at all what I expected in the book. And when I have him on the show, I'm going to ask him about that. But the reason I bring that up is Students don't like school because school gets progressively, quote unquote, worse from eighth grade to 12th grade, hmm. you know, and I'm in the profession and I have to wear part ownership of that. And, you know, something like alumni classroom, hopefully it mirrors what I try to do on a daily basis, which is what 
setting up an environment where you can be successful when you can be curious. But I also have to own things like, hey, I didn't get my students to ask 50 juicy questions this year. Doesn't mean there's not learning. Doesn't mean they're not showing it in different ways. But I think a lot of the curiosity and creativity, you know, gets quelched over the years, right? It just kind of just gets tamped out. And we have to really look at, our, at ourselves and our schools and see what we're doing to be a part of that. And I also know you're a parent. How are you trying to cultivate curiosity amongst your kids? If I say conversations, will you, will you judge me for being too on brand? No, I'm not going to judge you for any of this conversation. <laughs> well, I guess that was for you and for listeners, but the truth, it's true. The conversations I've had with my two kids, particularly my son, my daughter's more bodily kinesthetic. And I know there's, there's different parts to her too, but my son has such a, a way of having conversations and, you know, every morning he, he, he opens up with, how did you sleep? How was your sleep? Wait, 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 wait. Think, what do you mean every morning? You're like going down, getting a coffee and he says, hey, dad, how'd you sleep? It's exactly it. And, and it's, it's you painted the picture perfectly. He wakes up every morning, Brian, at 5 a.m. It doesn't matter if it's a weekday or weekend. He has his morning. He has a better morning routine. Not better. Let me take that back. I always have to watch what I say with you because you make me better. He has a different routine and a more ingrained routine than I do. And every single morning he stops what he does. When I come down, he, he gets up earlier than me. And he gives me a hug and he says, how was your sleep? It's almost like he's drinking the coffee, but it's like me as I'm going to get the coffee. And then from there, we just rock and roll. He, he's curious about my dreams. Uh, he tells me about his dreams. Um, we do put some technology um, boundaries on, but I, I think there's some great things that he's gotten from technology. Um, we started writing down some of the things he said recently because it's, he's 11 now and it's not as quote unquote cute, right? Like when he was five, coming off the soccer field. And he said, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I have the lethargy five years old, you know, identifying his lethargic nature and doesn't want to play soccer. He was always like that. So he's a good example of these curiosity things. It's, it's, it's amazing. The kind of conversations we have. I'm thinking about how you can embed that into your classroom. What ideas do you have? Well, what if, you started each class with your students asking a high velocity question. Let me ask you, if I do that, do I become Joey podcast? What's the downside of that? Just like this guy has a podcast. We know you have a podcast, like get off the podcast thing. Why? Cause you're a teacher. You're not a podcaster. Like, you know, like, I guess I would say I'm both, right? I would All right. Well, yeah. What's the distinction between teaching and podcasting? Just the secret life I live, I guess. I don't know why. That's yeah. so cool, dude. That's really cool. I mean, like, let's 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 own what you just said. Like, here's this concept called a hive lot. You know what? You're really look. You're making me think. I didn't. I knew that was going to happen when I signed up for this the show here. But uh, here's the thing: if I teach my students that I have a concept called high velocity questions, and I model it and I pull them five or six different examples, and I teach them how to do it, that sounds like amazing. Like, I'm actually like, wow. And I'm also like saying to myself, that sounds so obvious. I have never done that. <laughs> and Joe, curiosity, the science around curiosity, I mean, is enormous. I don't know if this guy talked about it in his book, but like the science... Kobe Bryant's favorite book was Curious George. He talked about curiosity being a superpower. I mean, you could do a whole 
class on, on curiosity and what it is. And I can't think of a better thing to teach someone before they go off to college. Um, and you, I, people use expert guru. Let's not call you either of those, but you have tremendous experience in this stuff. So yeah, I'm sitting here saying like, all right, well, what's the difference between teaching, coaching, podcasting, consulting, mentoring? These are all words. I have distinctions for each of those. And I think part of great teachers are great coaches. And I think part of being a great coach is also being a great teacher. I think like we, we try to silo these things. And to me, when you blend them and you figure out, well, when do I need a mentor? When do I need a consult? When do I need a coach? When do I need to teach? At the end of the day, your job is to add value to these kids' lives. Wow. I, I got to acknowledge something here. So I'm taking notes because I'm imagining it comes very quickly to me once I have a coach like you. I can imagine the entire unit right now in my English class. Like I, I can see the whole unit. It involves Ted Lasso, which we talked about on episode 170 of my show. It involves Curious George and Kobe Bryant, two huge cu cultural touchstones that get in there, three. Um, it involves high velocity questions. It involves all these examples. But what I want to acknowledge is like a lot of times when people have a, a damn good conversation, they'll say, oh, I just got like, I just got chills. And like I didn't get chills during that section, but I got this coursing of energy down my legs. Like because you and I know you do executive coaching and that wasn't part of what we signed up for today, but I know there's no rules either. You kind of unlocked something that quickly and at the risk of becoming, you know, part host on this show, we're in this together. I hope that people listening can can see how and hear how I just got something unlocked in me after 22 years of doing the craft. It doesn't mean the first 22 years were a waste. It doesn't mean I was sucky. But I can honestly say now, putting that in, giving this, and then listen, I don't know why I needed permission from, from you, Brian, but you gave me a form of permission right there to do it. And I'm just going to say thank you because I'm going to run with that shit. Well, first of all, we're both idea people. And when you have ideas, they're not always good. So we'll see. But, but at least let's, let's step into it and, and see what comes of it. And then the other thing that comes to mind, I know, uh, you've read David Epstein's work range, which is over my left shoulder. Um, and the reason I believe in coaching is because when we're so close to something, we often miss what's in front of us. And so coaching gives you someone else to come in, share space with you and help you figure out how to be better and grow and develop. And I mentioned David Epstein's book range because he talks about the power of generalists helping organizations because they give a different perspective and a different lens. And sometimes when we're so close to something, we can't zoom out and, and see something. So as you were talking, in my mind, I'm like, oh, when I envision you teaching, I envisioned you with the helmet stickers. Like the helmet stickers was such a cool idea, but perhaps your students don't even know what the hell you mean by curiosity and don't even know what a high velocity question is. And you have a podcast with, I don't know, you've probably had over what, 200 guests yeah, on? Yeah, man. And you're literally <laughs> modeling it for them there. And, and, and so like, I, I think about that as well. And before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, when do you ask questions? When do you share you? And for me, at least, it's fascinating that you're going to have to step into some vulnerability here because perhaps there's fear. 
perhaps there is some fear of like, they listen to it and then they think, now I know too much about Joe. The same reason you wouldn't share your age. When we disclose, there are potential consequences whenever we disclose. Um, That's so good. That is so good. Oh my God. I, I hope, I hope people listening got half as much out of that as I did that little exchange. Joe, is there anything in the educational system that pushes up against this, that you've been trained and ingrained for the last 23 years to um, not dive into this piece of you? Is there anything that exists within our educational system that holds our teachers back from, from stepping into this sort of stuff? There's a reality and there's a myth. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of teachers have accepted the myth part and the myth centers around curriculum and standards. I recently, it's funny, when you start a podcast, you have all these different ideas and goals and dreams and thoughts. And, and just recently, uh, I interviewed one of the best English teachers in the country. And obviously, that's impossible to measure. But like, if you were to poll 10 English teachers from all across the country and say, who are the best five English teachers or most prominent, Kelly Gallagher's name would be in the top three on every single list. And I had him on the show. And, and it was just a, just a beautiful validation measure in some ways because you become a teacher as your life work and then you have him on and it's like wow if you told me i would start a podcast only to have kelly gallagher on that might be enough to start a podcast so with that anecdote in mind he said you know sometimes teachers will say to him how do you get to the standards and curriculum while you're doing all this writing and reading and he's like and that was his his is reading and writing mine might be questions and curiosity and he said well they have the question backwards it's like how do you get to all the reading and writing if the standards and the skills get in the way. And I think that's such an interesting way to look at it. So with that in mind, what happens sometimes is people say, I'm an 11th grade American literature teacher. How on earth would I have a unit where I show a Ted Lasso clip mentioned to people that Kobe Bryant loved Curious George, teach a, a high velocity question, even though it doesn't exist in an English glossary? Well, but you know, people who listen to your show can hear the problem there. And can hear the opportunity with that unit that we're building together because now you're supercharging almost like a keystone habit everything that comes after whether you want to do classics or whether you want to do modern book clubs by igniting and reigniting their curiosity you're going to be able to get to so much more no matter what the subject is so that's that's how i frame that yeah I, I've been thinking a lot about curiosity and conviction over the past year and a half with COVID, with racial and social unrest. Um, and where do I stand? And there is a time to stand the capital. Um, and what I've come to realize about myself is that when I start with curiosity before I'm convicted, my conviction is way stronger. Um, but if I go with conviction first without curiosity, my conviction is, it's flimsy. And so, and I grew up in a house, a, a very loving and warm, amazing childhood where our dinner table, you were allowed to be convicted. You were allowed to speak up. It was not a yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am house. So I learned to have conviction, confidence early. Both my brothers do as well. And that conviction could sometimes get in the way of my own curiosity. And so back to this conversation and what makes a great conversation, I have to be careful because I can go conviction real quick and lose my curiosity and then not learn. Um, but for me, curiosity and learning are like so hand in hand. Um, you need curiosity if, if you want to learn. For, for you, why do you teach? 
to make an impact. You know, I, I, I think that there's a, there's a line written about a play uh, that I like a lot where the, the, the English critic said that the main character was just a, um, a man trying to leave his thumbprint on a block of ice at an ice sculpture. And that image of the ice is melting and his fingerprint is going away and what's left at that point, what, what impact can we have on others? So um, I try to make an impact on the young people. Um, I think that if I'm at my best and I look at alumni classroom or I look at, you know, the emails I get or messages from graduates asking me a question, um, I think that it, it measures that there was an impact made that when this is all said and done, you know, and we're in that English classroom in the sky, you, you, that guy, Joe, he did some things for me and with me and, you know, and opened some doorways and helped me get to where I wanted to be. And, and as one student said many years ago, fill me with confidence and, and see something in me that I couldn't see in myself. What kind of questions are you getting from your alumni after the fact? It's interesting because they have a burning desire to know about the podcast. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? They go back and, and that might be something I'm, I don't want to give myself an out, although I'd love to. It might be something that my podcast isn't geared for a 17 year old. Well, it isn't. I mean, let's be honest. Right. But it doesn't mean they can't learn from it. But once they're 24 and they listen to it on the train and they're like, yeah, that guy, you know, you had on was amazing. Who's that? Who's that Seth Godin guy or Tim Pollard talking about mastering it? Or are you going to ever have this person on? I was recently at a barbecue and my cousins were asking about the podcast and they said, who have you had on? And I, I said to myself, I don't know what name I would say to really capture the imagination of a 20 year old. So they have questions about the podcast. How do you do it? Now that I've entered into this, this world of coaching professionally, as well as the teaching um, where I'm trying to help people communicate their very best. They have millions of questions about that, right? You know, how do you do it? You're getting paid to do that. What do you do for those people? Can't they do that themselves? And wow, but you're a good resource. You've helped me before. So round and round we go. They, they, their curiosity is wide awake when they come back. Maybe that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other piece is like, maybe we need to give you a little more credit. The curiosity might not show itself with those stickers in the classroom, but perhaps you've unearth something in them that will show a little later. And sometimes that's how the world works. I remember a teacher when I was a freshman in college told me like, Brian, you're a good writer. Like you can write. I had never been told that before um, other than my parents. And I, I, I don't even remember the guy's name, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I mentioned him in my, in my book. And I said, you know, thanks to my writing 105 teacher at Syracuse University um, because it stuck with me and you never know, like to your point, when we'll be seen in a way um, and that will give us the permission to step toward things. And you mentioned chills, like I'm getting chills even as I talk about, I think his name was Rob, um, as I think about Rob. So I asked you why you teach and you said impact. Why do you podcast? I think the podcasting has two pillars why I do it the learning pillar and the communication pillar. So it's, it, I, I don't have an elegant example, but I want to do a spiral. I want to say that I'm so curious and I want to learn from these guests 
but I feel that I have something to offer in the way of organizing and uncovering something from the guest that someone else might not have. So that spiral works really well in my brain and I hope for others. So I'm curious um, about, I don't know, I'm looking at a book from Sean Askinosi who, who left the corporate law world to, to start a chocolate company. I mean, my brain runs wild when I thought of the questions I would have for someone who was one of the best trial attorneys in the country and left to make guilt-free chocolate. And when I had him on the show, he, he was really into the conversation and he was mentioning on air that he'd never had questions like this. And the conversation never really went like this before. So my curiosity leads me to Sean, who then during the curation of the, of the questions in the conversation, maybe we're able to uncover something that's never been uncovered before. And then you as the listener get to listen to it and then we can listen to it back and I get the feedback and on and on and on we go. And it just hits every part of my brain and, and my heart that is, that is valuable to me. So let's just stay here for a second. It's interesting. You said learning and communication. Those were the first two. And then why do you teach impact? And so for me, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, well, what does it look like to learn, communicate and impact? Um, what does that look like for you as a teacher? But also what does it look like for your students? If they learn how to learn if they learn how to be curious, they learn how to communicate, which I would imagine is a big part of teaching English. And then what impact does that have on the rest of their life? Because for me, at least my ability to learn, which didn't come probably till I was in grad school, which sounds absurd, but is probably the truth. Like I wasn't a big reader until I got to grad school. Um, and then my ability to communicate, whether it's with my words or in an email or writing a book, I don't know where I'd be without that. And I don't know how much of an impact I could make. And actually, when I was in grad school, there were people that I felt were such poor communicators that I didn't see a future for them in my industry. I didn't. Mm. I'm like, if you, if you can't communicate, I don't know how you do our work. Our work is so much about great communication. And I'm still getting better at it. You actually gave me an amazing tip that I'm going to share on, on air after we recorded something together, I don't know. I think I might've asked you or you might've just offered it. Um, but Joey said to me, Brian, look at your audio and look at how consistent your audio is over time. He said, you want to uh, adjust it. So sometimes you want to talk short and sometimes you can go longer. Uh, and in writing, they talk about that as well, short and then long. And I'd never heard that before. Where, where did you even learn that that was something that would be helpful? I learned that it would be helpful when I'm stepping back from the conversation and, and going into evaluation mode where it's, it's a combination of evaluation and, and, and analysis, right? And all those strength finder tests that you like and don't like, I, I, I had a lot of success hit, taking strength finders twice and analysis is top five in, in both times that I took it. And that doesn't surprise me at all. And I, I, I actually love analyzing things period, full stop, right? Why is that guacamole better than another guacamole? Um, what made that commercial? I love, I, I like having my students analyze commercials because they're 90 seconds. Why is that commercial? What is it trying to say? Why did it capture your attention? So I, I think one of the practices I've developed is to be able to step back from a conversation and to listen to it and pattern recognize 
what makes something what I call damn good, right? It's it's a crackle. It's a it's it's a lot of things, right? When you I'll use one more food analogy. Those those are the Gats magazines, those thin red volumes that used to rank decor, food, service, ambiance. Wait, it's called that. Zagat, not Zagat. Yeah, you got it. Oh man, I've been pronouncing it wrong. Today, today years old and uh, immaculate infatuation bought it, but it's a whole nother story. But I actually think like in some worlds, I've thought about trying to create one of those for podcasts, right? Where you're like rating them. I'm just not that comfortable rating them. But the point that's more salient than the rating is how can you look at a conversation in almost a four dimensional way and figure out how you can communicate to someone how to make that conversation better? And when I heard um, the pattern in yours, amidst all the excellent things, that was just something that showed up. I saw that almost every time you spoke, the amount of lines would be the exact same. If you literally picture a ruler, maybe it was three inches every single time down the horizontal plane. What would be cool would be three inches, then a quarter inch, three inches, then a quarter inch, six inches, then a four inch. And then that's audio files. So if you can imagine it physically, Listeners can imagine it in their head. And I, I, I go long too often. You know, I, I, I get excited. I get charged up. I want to go in a few directions. I want to paint the picture. I can be better served by going shorter at times. But I think it's just be, being able to step back, look at it from the side, see what you can observe that maybe someone else wouldn't have noticed. Are there other communication tools or tips that you would give either from your classroom or from your podcast? Absolutely. Um, right now I'm building out a, a course on asking better questions. And one of the things I think about is little exercises, like imagining if you were interviewing Tom Hanks and you only got one question, right? I, I like to turn the whole world into this gamified way to get better at communication. So if you were only interviewing Beyonce or Tom Hanks and you, you, you had one question only, what would you ask? And I think just a simple exercise like that kind of gets you into your framework of understanding like, how, how would I approach that? What would be the one question that would give me the most bang for my buck? So I love exercises like that. When I'm listening to a podcast, I'll often pause the podcast and see what I would ask as a follow-up question. Another way to use the world as my laboratory. Um, I think that simple things like shifting words, right? Instead of did or do or are, what and why and how. And it sounds basic, but it's, it's crucially important. I think most people that we listen to ask questions, they end with the word right at the end with a question mark. And then they're making an assumption. I think a lot of times we get either or questions. I, I tweeted the other day that that's pretty rampant right now. People love asking. I don't know if they love it, but they fall into the habit of asking either or questions. Just, hey, are you more of a, um, a meat or a potatoes guy? And, and if you listen to Brian's work for any kind of time, you know that an either or will never fit into your world because we already talked this conversation at the beginning about arriving and becoming and it's, and it's both. So Joe, those are Joe, things. You know, yeah. what's interesting about that. And I'm going to interrupt you, but I used to have in my podcast, I called them preferences and I would put people into those or boxes for the first 30, 40 podcasts. And I just had someone reach out that is binging this podcast. And they said, I love the preferences. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to stop doing them soon, but I don't want to tell them that. Why do you think it is that we want to get those preferences, I'm going to call them, and get people into an either or? It's satisfying, right? It has closure. It's neat. It's tidy. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to that the very few people know about 
starts out with 60 seconds about Brian Levinson and they actually have a ticking clock in the background and he'll say salt or sweet uh, horror movies or, or love stories. And until now, I, I never really thought about, is there any value that we're actually getting out of that? But for some reason, I feel like there is. And to this podcast credit, he just uses it as a, as a primer, right? It's nothing more than putting down that first layer of paint and then being able to go crazy on the canvas. But I think it's neat and it's tidy. Yeah, I wonder if it's a desire for us to know the person and we can attach ourselves to it and see ourselves in that person. But I just did a podcast where they did that to me and I really disliked it. I really, really, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And I remember interviewing Ben Olson, who was the former head coach at DC United on my podcast. And he was like, Brian, come on. Like, I, I don't know. And that's sort of Ben. Can we do it? Can we do like a quick meta exercise? So if I say, if I say uh, sweet or salty, right? And you, just what's your what's your gut instinct right there? Salty. Right, me too. I don't really think that's that interesting. But what if I, I said either. what if I said to you just going adjacent and I said to you, Brian, tell me about a time when you ate a food so spicy that either your tears came out of your eyes or your nose was running. Oh, it was not a good not a good experience. But you know it, and you could come up with it if we had airtime, right? Oh, yeah. I know exactly the meal. I was with my brother and my sister. We sweated through. They were giving us cucumbers and vegetables. It's one of the best-rated restaurants in Washington, D.C. I don't need to disparage them, but I am never going back there um, again. So isn't there enough there in that exact example to like show people what we're really after? Or at least I'll speak for myself what I'm after when it comes to a conversation. We can take a, a little bit of an easier way out and try to categorize you and put you in a box. Or I could procure a damn good story by just working a little bit harder on crafting questions. Um, and I think Phil M. Jones said it to me on my show. I'll paraphrase. The worst time to ask the question is when you need it, right? You need to have already thought about how you frame questions as a rule and then be flexible in the moment. Maybe it's not a perfect delivery of it, but that way that I asked you to tell me a story there, I knew it would work. That's one of the reasons why I like long form podcasts. Um, I understand that you can have an amazing interviewer for 30 minutes and they can get a lot out of that person. I have a, had a hard time figuring out how to really sit with someone and have a conversation in 30 minutes. Um, that maybe that's my own limitations, but I think both of us really love the, the long form because it gives you just space to play and you don't know what's going to happen when you start playing. And where I'd like to wind our conversation down is really go into teaching. Um, I don't think you know this about me. You may, but when I graduated from Syracuse, I wanted to go teach. Um, so I, I applied for teach for America and I got rejected. I did not get in. And at the time I was really interested in going into inner cities and, and teaching. And I thought that that would be my path and I could see it as a path for me. Um, so I'm really curious about teaching. I have thought about teaching. Um, I've thought about teaching in colleges. Um, and in some ways, I consider myself a teacher when I teach workshops. I, I think I turn into a teacher. For you, like, what are the best qualities you see in those greatest teachers? You just said, I interviewed somebody who I think of as a, one of the top five English teachers in the country. What are qualities that make teachers great? For me, it, it begins, it doesn't end, but it begins with the fact that a teacher, at least from my vantage point, a great teacher 
needs to set up an environment in which not only is it able to allow the student to flourish, but I even go as far as to say where they will be enjoying being in that environment. And I, I don't think it's bad to say a classroom should be a place where there's fun to be had. I think it should be enjoyable. And I think there should be challenging, difficult things there. But that whole environment piece is the starting point. I want it to feel different. I want it to sound different. I almost want it to smell different than the classroom next door. And that's where I start. Smell different? How does it smell different? I've thought about getting coffee beans and putting them in the classroom. I've actually considered it. Uh, but I, I ultimately thought that with kids that are really smell sensitive or allergies or things, it just probably isn't a great thing. But I've actually gone that far because I like, I like the smell of a tire store. I worked, uh, I worked for an ice cream company, um, my second job out of college, and they make the cones in the back so that you smell that cone smell. So you're walking by, maybe you're going to a movie theater, you smell that cone smell and they would just make them. And that's what they would do. Even throw them out. And, just and, and let me let me defend that smell part for without being silly, being serious. What I think I mean by that is that if you were to go into my classroom tomorrow and I said you were going to teach in this classroom for the next two weeks, what I'd love to see from you if I was in a, a colleague or mentor role is, are you able to step back and look at this rectangle and observe the environment and see and imagine how that environment is going to help pull the very best from each student? So if there's a weird smell or there's a weird poster, I want to be intentional about it. I want to, everything that I do there should be in its place. It doesn't mean it's not going to be sloppy or disorganized in places. It doesn't mean like that, but, uh, but an awareness of the environment. So can you take us to a curious environment and what that might look like? Say a little bit more about what you mean, because as soon as you say a curious environment, I'm picturing books on the walls and posters and things like that. Is that where you're getting at? So I, I'll give, yeah. I so I have, um, I'll give you, I'll give you a trade-off that I made years ago. And I don't know if it's been a good trade-off. I used to have a, a laminated piece of loose leaf paper. I think I bought it for $6 and you could draw on it and dry erase. And every day I would put a quote on the board. It would have the date and either a quote, a drawing, a riddle, something. And wow, this is, this is really bringing up some interesting memories here. And kids would come in from the hallway, Brian, to look at this and go, oh, Mr. Farrar drew a snowman today. Wait, you can draw? And it would be a conversation starter. I made one of the biggest, I'm, I'm realizing it now, I made one of the biggest mistakes of my career. I took down the, the, the thing as it got old, and I took the doors, don't tell my administration, off the book closet. Why? Because I had good intentions. Guess what I did, Brian? I wanted these beautiful books to show. But guess what I got rid of? The dry erase curiosity starter. Oh my God. I have every book you could ever want. I have David Epstein. I have Seth Godin. I have Debbie Millman. I have Ta-Nehisi Coates. I got all the books that they would want to read, but they wanted the damn, I'm talking to myself now. They wanted the damn frosty or the quote. Maybe I can do both, but that's something. Another quick snapshot. One of the pictures I had made, we have a, a photographer who's a parent. She does beautiful job. She took a picture, man, you're making, listen, I'm not just saying this. You're making me think of things I had not thought of in this way. So I want to thank you. But there's a photographer. She took a picture that I called the greatest photo in Valhalla history. I just named it that. And I think most people 
that I work with have that same thought, but the way that I'm different is I do something with it. And what I did was I asked her for the original and she sent me the high resolution original picture. And I went and made a poster and I got it on one of those thick posters that'll last the test of time. And I went and searched and found the best possible quote that would match it. Here's what the picture is. It's a graduate, I think 2011 graduate, wearing the Viking helmet, this huge cartoon mascot, dunking a basketball. And the vantage point of the picture shows him dunking with little kids looking up at him. And I paired a George Bernard Shaw quote with it that said, those that say things are impossible should not get in the way of those who are doing it. And I put that poster at the top of my classroom. And I think as I'm boasting and saying how awesome that is, I think the one thing I'm missing now is this connection. Cause I think putting it on the board is enough. You know why, Brian? Because I would have mentioned it as a student and you would have mentioned it as a student. But you know what I've never done? I've never said to Tanya, Tanya, you see this picture? What's interesting about it? What strikes you about that? And then be able to tell them the story and let them connect that way. So that's a lot, but you got me fired up. All right, Joe, we're going we're gonna to start to wind down. And you just mentioned you would like that. I would like that. Let's go to 17-year-old Joe. You're sitting across from 17-year-old Joe and you're in this sort of crossroads and you're not sure, do I share the podcast? Do I step into this curiosity piece? What would 17-year-old Joe say to you, teacher Joe, about what you should do with, with what we're talking about? Mr. Ferraro, I was doing this new thing called Google or Goggle. It's like a search engine. You can type in anything you want. It's literally the dream of anyone who's curious. And yeah, you can look up some weird stuff. But I looked up your name and you come up with two searches right away. 1% Better, which was a podcast. I'm going to ask you about that. And then Damn Good Conversations, where you started a company where you help people have better conversations. Can you, can you tell us a little about your podcast, Mr. Farrar? That's what I would say. Let's fast forward five years from now. I'm not, how old would you be? 48. There you go. What does your classroom look like? I think it has to be creator centered. I think it has to be kids that are creating content more than consuming it. Right now, at the best, they're consuming what I asked them to consume and maybe a little bit of their choice. I would like to flip the paradigm. I'd like to make it, I don't know, 70% creation, 30% consumption. Of the 30% consumption, 10% my choice, 20% their choice, right? If you wanted to go big picture, 100%, I would say... 75% should be their choice of what they read and write. 25% is what I select for them. And as you say that out loud, how does that feel? It feels awesome. And I, I, it feels so good that I think I can connect the dots between 48 and 43, because as I've alluded to in this conversation, my, I told people this, I think they think I'm crazy. I mean it dead seriously. My mantra 
prior to this conversation, now I got to do some rethinking. Uh, prior to this conversation, my mantra for year 23 was three words, best year ever. Now, maybe that becomes my silent mantra because that doesn't mean much to a 17-year-old kid. But what I can really do a good job at is explaining we're coming off of this pandemic where learning was disrupted in every single way. There's absolutely no reason why this won't be the best year of school in history of the entire country. And I mean that. Like every teacher should have a new perspective. Every student should be filled with gratitude. I hate using the word should, but that's what's coming to me. And I feel like we have a responsibility to reignite things like never before. So like in my movie version, I was like, this is going to be a relaxing summer and I'm just going to recharge and rejuvenate. But what I've learned already is that there's really nothing relaxing about it. It's energizing. It's rejuvenating, but from a source of, oh my God, precious time is ticking away. Let's get to work. That's a beautiful place for us to, to wind down and, and, and stop before you go. First of all, I want to thank you. Uh, you're a thoughtful guy and you're the type of teacher I wish I had. Um, but you're also the type of teacher I'm glad I have. And uh, I'm grateful that you're continuing to teach me, even it's through tweets. I think we don't need to have formal teachers to still learn. And you are someone I love to learn from, whether it's through your podcast or Twitter or us being on a podcast together. Um, and once again, I look forward to breaking bread with you in person because I think that's a part of learning as well that we are all craving and I'm starting to do, which feels damn good. Um, but I also want to thank you because you are vulnerable. You are curious. In our hour together, you're willing to become, you're willing to grow, you're willing to learn. And I think that piece of you is probably what makes you a great podcast host, a great teacher, and probably most importantly, a great father and husband. So uh, appreciate you, love getting to know you. If people want to find out more about your coaching, your podcast, your speaking, um, anything Joe Ferraro, where can they, where can they do that? damngoodconversations.com is the cleanest place to go. If you like Twitter, Ferraro on air, my last name, F like Frank, like my mom always said, E-R-R-A-R-O on air. Um, those are the two places. Uh, I, I, I often bristle when podcast hosts say, I could talk to you for three hours. While I think that's true, one of the things we've done here in 60 minutes or about is we've packed more into that 60 than some people will in three. And I don't mean that to be demeaning. It's just exactly how I feel. Um, you've done a beautiful job here of making me think. So I have to believe other people are, are thinking and inspiring as well. And I think people know by now that you mean it and I mean it. Reach out and let us know if this landed for you because we would love to hear how going into those nooks and crannies work. But I can say for sure that I feel energized and man, it's uh, it was an absolute pleasure today. Yeah, I love that you talked about being a creator, because if I could go back to my high school self, I never was told that I was creative. I wasn't artistic. You know, I wasn't in the band like I wasn't a musician. So creativity wasn't a thing. But I was a creator and I didn't have any outlet to really be a creator. And I can't wait to see what you do to create a classroom of creators, because to me, the world we live in. Over the last year, I mean, how many people launched podcasts over the last year during a pandemic? Because they could. We now are in a place in our world where creators, you're probably better off becoming a creator than writing for a newspaper. 
Um, nothing against writing a newspaper and being a journalist, but the world changes and evolves. And so I can't wait to see what you do to, to create creators and to help them find their space. And I know for me, I would have loved that. Uh, I'm on social media, Twitter and LinkedIn are the two places I like to play at Brian Levinson. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Joe, appreciate you, brother. And uh, we'll chat again real soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I think the podcasting has two pillars why I do it. The learning pillar and the communication pillar. So it's it, I, I don't have an elegant example, but I want to do a spiral. I want to say that I'm so curious and I want to learn from these guests but I feel that I have something to offer in the way of organizing and uncovering something from the guest that someone else might not have. So that spiral works really well in my brain and I hope for others.